Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone requires assistance during the workshop, please press star zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, The Benefits of Clinical Trials for Triple Negative Breast Cancer. And today's program is a partnership with the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, and you'll be hearing later on in the program in much more depth about all the resources and services that the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation um, really offers to all of you. Um, and today's program is made possible by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, Gilead, a grant from Genentech, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc. And I really want to thank them all for their support to this program. And I particularly want to thank the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. For those of you who have been listening to all of our Triple Negative programs during the month of October and now, and another one coming up in December and January as well, um, those, many of those programs have been initiated by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, and we're very grateful to them for that support. Now, we have a lot of you on the program today. There are over 323 participants. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. We also have international participants today from Australia, Canada, the Dominican Republic, England, India, Kenya, Nigeria, and the Philippines. There's a bit of a global call as well, and we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I'm going to ask you all just a few questions, really to have a sense of what you know um, before the program starts. It really helps us as we plan future programs that our programs are tailored to meet your needs. I'm going to start with the first question. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. And this will apply specifically to people who are live streaming the program. So you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to rate them. So um, I, the first question, I understand why clinical trials are important for triple negative breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand what happens in a clinical trial and the meaning of informed consent. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I know how and where clinical trials are conducted. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. I understand the questions to ask the healthcare team about clinical trial participation for triple negative breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. I understand including clinical trials as a treatment option for triple negative breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And I want to thank all of you who participated in these polling questions, in these questions. It really helps us as we plan our future programs. And now it's my pleasure 
introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Generos Grana. Dr. Grana is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper, Division Head, Hematology and Medical Oncology, the Cooper Health System, Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. And Dr. Grana will be addressing an overview of the treatment of triple negative breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, why clinical trials are important as a treatment option for triple negative breast cancer, specific questions to ask your healthcare team about clinical trials, including how to participate in a clinical trial, and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grana. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to be here joining all of you. Um, first of all, triple negative breast cancer. It's a variant of breast cancer whose features are that they are estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, and HER2 nu negative. There are actually more sophisticated testing tools to designate uh, triple negative breast cancers. Uh, it can be broken down further into subgroups. Uh, basal is one of those subgroups and other subtypes based on their genetic profile, but that's beyond today's topic, so we're going to focus again on the, the bucket of cancers that fall into this triple negative group that I've defined. The features of triple negative is that it's more common in younger women, African-American younger women, and particularly in women who carry BRCA1 mutations. It accounts for about 15% of all breast cancer, and we do know that it has a slightly more aggressive biology. It tends to be more advanced uh, stage at time of diagnosis. It tends to have a slightly worse prognosis in terms of earlier recurrence. We think of uh, the first three years as being that pivotal uh, risk of recurrence. But the other side of the story is that it is very responsive to chemotherapy, and there's a lot of research being done to understand its behavior and to find new drugs. The current approach to triple negative breast cancer for early stage breast cancer is surgery, which can be mastectomy or lumpectomy and radiation, followed by chemotherapy. There is no role for hormone therapy, no role for the use of oncotype uh, as some patients are uh, uh, aware of, and there is no role for her 2 based therapies such as trastuzumab, pertuzumab, or other. Chemotherapy is used for even very small cancers, 5 to 6 millimeters and node negative, which you would think is such a small cancer, those patients are still recommended chemotherapy unless there is a significant age issue or unless the patient has other comorbidities. There is no optimal chemo regimen. There are various regimens and schedules and durations that can be used and they vary from institution to institution and also have to be targeted to the patient and their other health issues. Commonly used regimens you may have heard about include adriamycin and cytoxin followed by taxol. Um, that can be given every two weeks, known as dose-dense. The taxol can be given weekly or it can be given every two weeks. Another commonly used regimen, particularly for the very small cancers, is taxotere and cytoxin, or TC, which can be four or six cycles in length. The use of carboplatin and cisplatinum platinum compounds uh, have benefit, but their benefit is still really being debated. And uh, some institutions and some clinicians are much more uh, likely to recommend those compounds than not. I would say that they're much more likely to be recommended for a woman who's mutation positive or a woman who has more aggressive disease. 
Neoadjuvant or preoperative chemotherapy is something that's become very, very popular in triple negative breast cancer. The tendency is to use preoperative or neoadjuvant chemotherapy both to assess the response of the tumor to drugs, so you basically have a biologic experiment telling you if your drugs are working, and if they're not working, you can move on to something else. It also allows you to better tailor treatment. If someone is responding very well, you may be able to do less on the back end or do nothing on the back end. And it's also very helpful to uh, help make a breast conservation possible at times. There are women whose initial presentation is large enough that keeping the breast would not be an option. And if they respond well to chemotherapy, breast conservation may well be possible. So neoadjuvant chemotherapies become quite popular and often being used for quite small cancers. We know that triple negative cancers are very responsive to chemotherapy. Up to 50% of patients who have preoperative chemotherapy have no residual tumor in the breast or in the nodal region. We call that a pathologic complete response. I celebrate that with my patients. And that's what is defined when a patient goes to surgery, their breast surgery is completed and their node dissection or node sampling is completed. For those patients that don't achieve a pathologic complete response, the important uh, issue is how much disease was there in the specimen. If only non-invasive disease was identified, that's okay. Those patients still do very, very well, and we don't do anything further in terms of more chemotherapy. For those patients that still have significant disease, more than a centimeter of disease in the breast or still node positive, an oral agent, Zalota or capecitabine, can be used with very significant benefit. And that's given for six months at the completion of the prior chemotherapy. The role of immunotherapy in uh, triple negative breast cancer is something that's gotten a lot of attention in the last uh, probably two to three months. Uh, trial Keynote 522, which has been published, is a phase three trial giving women preoperative pembrolizumab, otherwise known as Keytruda, in combination with carboplatinum, taxol, followed by adriamycin and cytoxin. And it showed a very significant benefit, about a 36 to 40% improvement in event-free survival. And it, there was a trend uh, to overall survival, although the data is still early. So it is now something that is being considered for many women where preoperative chemotherapy is uh, considered. Now, is it being given all the time? No, because unfortunately it does have some significant toxicity. Um, immunotherapy has what is known as immune-mediated uh, uh, events, uh, including thyroid dysfunction, rashes, lung toxicity, and other toxicities. So whether to include immunotherapy and neoadjuvant regimens is still the subject of a lot of debate and something that is typically uh, individualized on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. The role of PARP inhibitors, Olaparib, was just approved for women who have a BRCA1 positive and have significant residual disease in their surgical specimen. And then there are a whole other host of drugs in development that you'll hear about later today. In metastatic disease, which I'm not going to spend much time on, which is disease that has spread outside of the breast and regional nodes into the lung, liver, bone, or other, 
the use of immunotherapy with chemotherapy is quite common. A new drug called sasetuzumab, gabatecan, or trotoby is quite common. And then we have a whole array of other uh, chemotherapy agents that can be used. I think it's really in metastatic disease that a lot of interest in clinical trials is and uh, where we really want patients to consider participating. So with that, let's move on to introduce the concept of clinical trials. Uh, clinical trials are important as a treatment option in triple negative breast cancer. It's really the only way that we're going to improve treatment for women with this disease because we need to identify new drugs that have uh, better activity and less toxicity. COVID-19 did have an impact on clinical trials and on breast cancer treatment in general. Early in the pandemic, our surgeries were uh, canceled because we couldn't take patients to the OR. Clinical trials and many services were curtailed. Uh, and again, it really limited access to clinical trials. Fortunately, most restrictions have been lifted and all institutions by and large are back uh, fully with surgery, fully uh, with clinical trials, still have a lot of limitations on visitors being present for chemotherapy, visitors being in the office, etc., but the offering of services has resumed. Now, specific questions to ask your healthcare provider about clinical trials. First, do they have trials that you might be able to participate in? And if they don't, can they guide you? There are lots of sites that you will hear about later today that give you information about trials, but it often is challenging to navigate the individual trials to see if they're appropriate for you or to see if you're even a candidate based on your blood work, based on the prior drugs you've had, based on the toxicity you may already have from other drugs. So involving your healthcare provider is very important. But it's also important that you do your own homework. Uh, the Triple Negative Foundation, Komen, and others have services to help you identify potential trials that you can then bring to your provider and say, hey, is this appropriate for me so that they can then weigh in. Uh, bring your provider a list and discuss what may be appropriate for you based on your prior treatments, uh, prior uh, lines of therapy, residual toxicity, overall health, your own interests, your willingness to travel or not travel, etc., so that together you can make a decision of what is appropriate and realistic for you. The final topic I was asked to touch on is the increasing role of telehealth or telemedicine. And this has really changed over the pandemic. In both clinical care and in clinical trials, uh, both in terms of enrollment onto clinical trials and participation in clinical trials, telehealth has really helped us uh, in terms of increasing access, uh, especially when we couldn't have uh, patients in the office or family members in the office. So I think it's a win. It's a very positive thing. Many offices offer this for new patients and new consultations, as well as for follow-up patients. And it can be either telephone alone or computer-enabled video conferencing. Uh, and in any case, it can be a very good way to communicate with your healthcare team, both about the issues that you're experiencing, the symptoms that you're having, as well as a discussion about enrolling on trials and, and the, the workup that is needed to enroll on a trial. So I see uh, telehealth uh, and telemedicine is a very positive outcome of a terrible pandemic that uh, will shape our practice of medicine for a long time to come. And with that, I'll stop. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Glana. That was outstanding and just a wonderful um, setting the context for today's program. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well.
Our next speaker is Dr. Manetta Liu, and Dr. Liu is Professor and Research Chair, Division of, in, of Med Medical Oncology, Department of Oncology, Consultant, Division of Anatomic Pathology, Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Medical Director, Office of Specialty Collaboration, Collaborations and Contracts, Co-Leader, Genomics in Action, Strategic Priority, Center for Individualized Medicine, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Liu will be addressing new research in the treatment of triple negative breast cancer, investigational new drugs in clinical trials, and how and where clinical trials are conducted for triple negative breast cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Liu. Thank you very much, and thanks to everybody who signed on to this. It's amazing the number uh, of international and, and national participants, so thank you for taking the time. Um, I'm at heart a medical oncologist. I see patients and take care of those who are diagnosed with breast cancer. And we're here today to focus on hormone receptor negative, HER2 negative uh, breast cancer. I don't like to use the term triple negative. It's sort of a pet peeve of mine just because I feel like it gives us a label. Um, and there are many, many different flavors of hormone receptor negative, HER2 negative breast cancer um, they're not all the same, and that's really where a lot of the research is, is going. It's, it's not just about developing new drugs. It's about understanding um, the subtypes of this specific type of breast cancer, um, understanding what really makes that cancer tick and how can we try to outsmart it. So I put the, the research in three buckets, if you will. Uh, one is a bucket of prognostic factors, and so that's mostly laboratory type of research, um, oftentimes using tumor biopsies or surgical specimens after surgery to study the um, mechanics or biology of what makes that breast cancer go. Um, the second bucket is, I call them predictive factors, uh, and that's trying to understand tumor biology in a different way not just what's making it go, but can we predict how we can make it stop, right? What breaks are needed to help stop that cancer from growing, from spreading? And then the third is obviously treatment. Um, and along the way, it's monitoring for treatment and determining whether once you've made a selection, uh, is that drug or combination of drugs the right one for that patient at that moment? Because sometimes it's the timing of giving the medications, not just the act of giving it whenever we feel it might be appropriate. So again, a lot of this research outside of drug development is really geared towards understanding what's happening in the tumor itself with evaluations of tumor tissue. We're now in a world where instead of doing a tissue biopsy, in other words, surgery or sticking a needle in an organ through the skin, uh, is a liquid biopsy and being able to learn from tumors by simple blood tests. And I say simple, but although it's the simple act of drawing blood, the testing that goes behind that um, is really based on new technologies that are evolving very quickly. But as we understand more and more about the biology of these cancers, that can really help us guide the investigational new drugs that are currently being evaluated in clinical trials. So many of the clinical trials now are past chemotherapy. This is really looking at targeted therapies or new immunotherapies, ways of manipulating biology again against the cancer, whether it's directly against the cancer or it's heightening our immune system against those cancers. 
and many of these trials are going to require um, a sample of tumor tissue or a blood sample to help guide eligibility, meaning is a specific abnormality present related to the tumor at that time to make us willing to uh, pick a targeted therapy under investigational uh, clinical trials to help balance those risks and benefits. Um, these targeted therapies, we like to identify whether or not the target is there um, because in theory, although it doesn't always play out this way, in theory, if the target is present on the tumor, that will help us better guide potential effectiveness of those drugs. So more and more now we are seeing in clinical trials the need for a new biopsy or a new blood test or blood sampling for eligibility. And although that's tailoring and individualizing therapy, it can also mean that it's more difficult to get onto different clinical trials because a drug might sound promising the way it's presented in the press or at a meeting presentation but there may be specifics about who can qualify, and that can make it frustrating for patients and for their physicians who want, who hear this excitement, want to access that drug, but it's really not the right drug at that time. So we need to understand why those eligibility criteria exist the way they do. In terms of benefits and risks of participation in clinical trials, uh, these are really uniform across all clinical trials. The inherent benefits are, one, the potential, if it's a treatment trial in particular, for doing better than the standard of care. But we have to remember that the standard of care, the medications that we can prescribe routinely, came to be because clinical trials were performed historically that suggested it was better than the previous standard of care. So we're always learning and we're always building. Um, to present a clinical trial to a patient as a provider, my metric is, well, right now I don't know that I can guarantee anything with a particular therapy. Uh, and this investigational drug, whether it's alone or in combination with the standard drug, may be better than the standard of care alone. It doesn't mean that the standard of care won't potentially be used later on, but for various reasons this might be the right match for an individual again at that moment in time. So it's the potential to do better. The risk is that with the new drug, there are additional side effects. And we're studying as we're going. I call it sort of like building a plane as we're flying it, although not as drastic. So within those clinical trials, there are always safeguards for frequent visits, for additional blood tests or testing to ensure the safety um, not just the efficacy of proceeding with, again, an investigational new drug. And again, sometimes these trials are not necessarily new drugs. They're different ways of giving drugs. We're combining them in novel ways. Uh, so it's really incumbent on the providers to be sure that we're explaining this properly and presenting it as a choice. Um, it's not the only choice because there are always options for patients. The risks will be associated with the risks of the new drug, perhaps, of any additional procedures that may or may not be, need to be performed. And this is the purpose of informed consent, is that process of making sure that we're educating patients properly about the potential risks and benefits of, of trial participation. And the important thing to remember is providing informed consent is not a binding contract. 
that there should always be a careful discussion all along the way between providers and their patients and the participants on the clinical trials whether to make sure that it's always the right fit because at some point in time a provider may decide or a patient may decide that they want to stop their participation. Certainly we don't want to start off that way, um, but things can change along the way and we just have to be mindful of that. Uh, clinical trials are performed in many institutions, um, both in community practices and in academic practices. Uh, and we all select these trials in terms of uh, bringing them to our patients based on whatever else we have going on and what we think might be the best offering for our patient population. Um, they more and more, because of COVID-19, there are efforts to sort of break down the barriers of where trials are performed. It's historically been, I'm starting treatment at this institution, the trial is available at this institution, I need to keep going back to that same facility because I'm agreeing to participate in the study under their guidance. With COVID-19 and with travel restrictions and trying to limit just coming back and forth to institutions, we have been trying more and more to do uh, uh, collaborative uh, clinical trials, working with practices that are closer to a patient's home, allowing blood to be drawn at local facilities instead of having to come back to um, the parent institution. So one of the potential benefits, if you want to think of it that way, of COVID-19 has been opening the door to that creativity while maintaining safety um, for all of our patients. I'm going to stop there and turn over to our next speaker. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lou. That was outstanding, a wonderful presentation. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Jennifer Metro. Metro, and Dr. Metro um, is Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine, uh, Division of Hematology, Oncology, University of California, San Diego Health. And Dr. Metro will be addressing stages of clinical trials and what happens in a clinical trial, the meaning of informed consent, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up care and discussion of open notes, and accessing resources for clinical trials. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Metro. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a pleasure to be speaking today, and uh, I'm going to piggyback off of what Dr. Grana and Dr. Uh, Lou talked about uh, and sort of be get a little bit more general in terms of clinical trials and what it means to be on a clinical trial and what the different phases of trials are. Um, so clinical trials come in four stages or phases. Uh, a phase one clinical trial is typically, uh, is often a first in human study or um, it's, it's a new way to use a, a new drug. And these studies typically involve fewer than 100 people. And the purpose is to determine a drug's safest dose. These trials usually start with a few people at a low dose, and as the safety of each dose is established, a few more patients are enrolled onto the next higher dose. And if at a particular dose there is an increase in the number of side effects, uh, then typically the dose just before that is what's chosen as the dose to be brought forward to a larger group of patients, for example, in, in something called a phase 1B trial. Um, so the ultimate goal of a phase 1A or B trial is to establish the appropriate dose and safety 
but we are as investigators also looking at efficacy as well and um, some phase one trials may be limited to a particular type of cancer or others may, may include all types of cancers. And as more patients are enrolled, investigators are looking at the data to determine if there are any signals of greater efficacy in a specific population. So maybe in breast cancer over stomach cancer or in triple negative breast cancer over hormone positive breast cancer. Uh, but ultimately the goal of these, these earliest studies is to establish a safe dose and once that safe dose is established, then a phase two trial is opened, and that's a larger study, uh, and it's starting to look more at efficacy. We do still focus, of course, on safety in these trials. Uh, it's occasionally rare side effects that may not have been seen in a small number of people uh, may be revealed once more patients are exposed to the drug. Um, but typically, a phase two study is targeting patients with a specific condition, such as breast cancer, uh, that the drug was developed for. The dose that was established in a phase one trial is used in the phase two study, and patients are followed for many months or even years to determine the drug safety and efficacy. Uh, in most phase two trials, there's not necessarily a placebo or comparison arm. All patients are getting the drug and are followed and evaluated. These trials typically involve uh, a couple hundred people. A phase three trial uh, are really the the, the larger trials that um, ultimately will establish the safety and efficacy of a medication or, or a way of delivering a medication that then leads towards FDA approval. So a phase three trial involves several hundred or thousand of, or several thousand patients, uh, and this is where the more convincing data on efficacy is generally determined. In these trials, the, the new drug is compared to either a placebo or the standard of care accepted treatment at that time point to see if it's more effective than other treatments available, or it may be given in a different way than we standardly give it. So once a week as opposed to every three weeks, or maybe there's an IV formulation as opposed to a standard oral formulation. Um, randomized controlled trials are phase three trials typically. Um, that is when uh, essentially a computer randomizes a patient who enrolls in the study into um, one of any number of different arms of the study, and each arm has a different combination of medications or a different schedule um, uh, of, of delivering the medications. Um, randomized controlled trials are, are really the gold standard in determining a drug's efficacy. They're often blinded, meaning the patient and the doctor, if it's double blinded, the patient and the doctor don't know if the patient is actually getting the experimental medication. There are some medicines that have very particular side effects that it's not really possible to blind a study, um, but we do try to do that whenever possible, just because it maintain, helps maintain the integrity of the trial. In breast cancer, these studies can be conducted in both early stage and metastatic breast cancer. In early stage breast cancer, the outcome of interest is often how many fewer patients develop a recurrence with a new medicine. And in metastatic breast cancer, we often look at the response of a cancer. Does it shrink? How long does the medication control the spread of the cancer? And how much longer do, do patients live? One of the... Uh, a, 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 very popular trial that's been going on for several years now is, is the iSpy clinical trial, which is 
uh, a novel way of looking of sort of get bringing new medications uh, to, into early stage breast cancer. It's a trial of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So neoadjuvant means given before surgery. And we take the standard of care kind of backbone chemotherapy regimen and, and are looking at new medications or substituting slightly different medications to see if we can improve on the standard of care. In that particular clinical trial, because it's the schedule or the, the schedule may not necessarily be the same with different regimens, it's not blinded, um, but the patients are followed very closely. And the ultimate outcome that we're looking at is whether they, they achieve a pathologic complete response, which as Dr. Grana defined, is when the cancer disappears from both the breast and the lymph nodes. Phase four trials are done after the FDA has approved a medication. Um, these trials typically involve thousands of participants and can last for many years. They're sort of post-marketing studies and they're used to gather more information about the drug's long-term safety effectiveness and any other benefits. If you do enroll on a clinical trial, you'll usually meet with a clinical trial coordinator or a nurse dedicated to that trial who will guide you through the process. Your doctor will go through the informed consent form so that you know what the trial will entail, what the schedule is, how often you may need to come in, any extra blood tests or exams you might need, and what the risks and benefits are of participating. Patients on clinical trials are followed very closely uh, because we want to know right away if there are any problems. Um, we don't want to be to, we, we don't want an identification of any of those issues to be delayed. Informed consent is a really important uh, concept that uh, Dr. Liu start, uh, also defined, um, but it's uh, a process where physicians communicate to, to patients all the risks and benefits of participating in a study or having some kind of healthcare intervention that's being studied before the patient actually agrees to participate. We give information about the procedure medication, what the burdens of participating might be, including time commitments, uh, alternative options, which always includes not participating in the clinical trial. And we want to make sure that all patients are aware that they can withdraw from the study at any time for any reason with no detrimental effect on their future care. So as, as Dr. Lee mentioned, this is not a binding contract. Once you sign an informed consent form, you are not obligated to stay on the trial no matter what. Uh, if, as she said, things change uh, and, uh, and uh, patients may change their mind or side effects may come up that, that, uh, they don't, that you don't want to deal with. And so it's totally fine um, to, to come off of a study, although we don't want you to enroll on the study with the plan that you'll just come off. Um, but informed consent is integral to the safe and ethical conduction of clinical trials uh, and, and our research. Um, there are many different resources for clinical trials, but some of them are not the easiest necessarily to navigate. Uh, a lot of academic centers uh, and even local oncology clinics often will have websites that list their open clinical trials. Uh, if you can't find that kind of resource, uh, you can ask your provider if they if there is one that that they have available. Uh, a, a very comprehensive site, at least in the United States, is um, clinicaltrials.gov, 
uh, and that's a site that can be a bit overwhelming, but has the list of a list of essentially any clinical trial that's open, not just in the United States, but sites around the world. Um, it lists eligibility criteria, where the sites are, what what the drugs are, um, sort of gives an overview. But um, because of the, the the detail, it's not necessarily written in in layperson's language. Um, but if you have if you are looking for clinical trials, um, you can put in breast cancer or triple negative breast cancer, and you can put in what stage, and it will um, sort of filter out and give you a list of trial options. And from within, from, from those, you can go through them to see if maybe they might apply to you. And if you're not sure, then kind of narrowing down the list and bringing them to your oncologist um, would definitely be a, uh, something that, that uh, we're, we're typically happy to, to help you out with um, if we don't have specific trials that are available to you in our own um, facility. So I'm going to just pivot then to talking about telehealth appointments for a few minutes um, and what the best way is to prepare for telehealth appointments. Um, there, are, First of all, you want to make sure you have a good connection on a reliable device, if that's a laptop or an iPad or a cell phone. If it's your first time connecting through that platform, you want to make sure you log on in advance uh, of when the visit starts so that if you do have difficulties, there'll be time to troubleshoot you might need to contact the secretary or uh, administrative assistant of the physician that you're waiting to see without, ha without interfering with your appointment time. It's always helpful to write down the questions that you have, what concerns you want to address, refer to those notes as often as you need to to make sure that every question gets, gets answered. If possible, have a family member or friend with you at home uh, sitting with you. Having a second set of eyes and ears can be really helpful in making sure that you remember the things that are discussed during the visit. If it's a video visit, you want to make sure that you're positioned properly within the camera lens. Um, even though we can't lay hands on you to do a, a, a physical exam that way, there are a lot of important information that we can gather just by looking at somebody through through the video. Um, you know, are you speaking full sentences without having to stop to catch your breath? Do you look pale? Are all of your facial movements and upper body movements normal. At the end of the visit, you want to make sure you know what the next steps are. If tests are being ordered, how are they going to get scheduled? Do you need to schedule them? Are they going to be scheduled for you? Um, will you be setting up a follow-up appointment? When should that be? How does that get scheduled? All the little details. Um, OpenNotes.org is a great online resource for patients that has really detailed information and, and pages with frequently asked questions about how to prepare for a telemedicine appointment. So if you're looking for more detailed information or guidance, that's, um, that's a really great resource, a great place to go to um, just to get even more specific information about how to take advantage of these telemedicine appointments, which as Dr. Grana said, I think we all are hoping that this, that might be one of the one of the things that we take away from the pandemic uh, that, that we continue, because there are a lot of advantages of telemedicine visits for both physicians and patients. So I will stop there and turn it back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Maitre. That was outstanding, just a wonderful presentation. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you, thank you so much. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Haley Dinnerman, and Ms. Dinnerman is a, a lawyer, and she
She is um, co-founder and executive director of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, and she really is the architect of many of these programs that we've been offering over these past uh, two, three months, actually, um, and before that as well. Um, and uh, Ms. Denman will be addressing the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation's free programs and services and all of the different resources that they offer, and it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Denman. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for that kind introduction. Uh, thank you also to my fellow speakers for your presentations, to our sponsors, and of course to all of you listening here today. Today's teleconference is one of many programs offered by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. All our programming is specifically designed to address the needs of the triple negative community, from patients to survivors to caregivers and loved ones. Today, I'd like to highlight a few of our offerings, and I sincerely hope that you'll take advantage of them as you navigate from diagnosis through treatment and finally to survivorship. First, we have many educational brochures and fact sheets that are available in print or also as free downloads from our website. Our popular materials were developed with input from members of our diverse TNBC community, as well as esteemed medical experts in the area of TNBC. Like all of our other educational materials, these brochures have special sections addressing issues of particular interest to certain members of our community, including black women, those with BRCA mutations, those with early stage diagnoses, and those with metastatic disease. We work hard to make sure that every member of our TNBC community can find relevant information and practical guidance in these materials, so I hope you'll use them to your benefit. Our website, tnbcfoundation.org, offers two free and TNBC-specific clinical trials matching services that we're told are much easier to navigate than other services. One is our triple negative clinical trials matching service, which is all-encompassing, and the other is our metastatic trial search. Both can be accessed through our website under the research heading. Our website also has a constantly updated TNBC news section and a favorite of our community, our online discussion forums. The forums allow you to easily connect with thousands of women who are living with triple negative breast cancer any time of the day or night. Our community, including thousands of women um, from those who are newly diagnosed to many long-term survivors, use the forums to ask questions about treatment, about how to manage side effects, and anything else related to TNBC. But most importantly, these forums offer consistent support to our community. So if you aren't currently registered for them, you should consider joining them, and you can even join anonymously. While the TNBC Foundation normally makes every opportunity to meet with you in person, given the ongoing pandemic, we had to make adjustments for everyone's safety. Until we can meet in person, we're expanding our virtual programs. We have two wonderful online meetups for our TNBC community, Tuesdays with TNBC Friends and Metastatic Mondays. These online support groups have allowed us to connect to the community throughout the pandemic, and you can sign up for our next meetings on tnbcfoundation.org. We're also very excited to offer you an extensive program surrounding the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium this December. We'll, we'll take you along with us um, to this important conference virtually to learn about new and emerging TNBC research. You'll have the opportunity to interact with doctors and researchers during this week-long program. If you follow us on Facebook or visit our website, you'll get regular updates and be able to register for this and all our other programs. In the meantime, I look forward to connecting with you on social media, by phone, or online at tnbcfoundation.org. So once again, thank you for joining us, and I'll now turn the program back to Dr. Messner. 
Oh, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Newman. Wonderful presentation, wonderful resources for everybody. If you're not connected to the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, do take advantage of all of their wonderful resources. And I'm going to say a few more words about Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation's free services. I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And um, the, we also, um, there is a, a, a line that you can contact, the, the helpline, 877-880-8622. And you can contact that number and speak to one of our oncology social workers for support, financial assistance, grants, support groups, and educational workshops. And um, many people find these to be very, very helpful to be able to call and speak to someone directly who can really help you with all those different services. So please do take advantage of that. Um, also, um, do visit the TNBC um, foundation.org website as well with lots of resources for you as well. And at the end of today's program, you're all going to be getting a survey monkey evaluation, and that will give you all these resources that have been mentioned during the program itself by all the speakers. And, um, and there's also an evaluation. If you, we appreciate your pulling that out, but it's not just an evaluation. You also get more resources and extension of the program. Now, before we move on to the Q&A, um, I just have a few uh, questions to ask all of you, and so I'm going to move into that. We'll take about probably less than two minutes, and then we'll move on to the Q&A. So have your questions ready. Um, and our first question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of why clinical trials are important for triple negative breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And again, those of you who are live streaming the program will be able to see the questions and be able to respond to them. And my next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge about what happens in a clinical trial and the meaning of informed consent. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge about how and where clinical trials are conducted. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to ask questions and work with the healthcare team to utilize their tips and suggestions about clinical trial participation for triple negative breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of participating in clinical trials for triple negative breast cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It will help us as we plan programs going forward um, to better tailor the programs to meet your needs. And now we're going to have time for questions. I'm going to ask uh, Michelle, to explain to all of you how to for questions, I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. 
If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. Okay, we have a question um, from one of our online participants. Um, so this question would be for Dr. Matro. Um, I'm very interested in finding a clinical trial for triple negative breast cancer near me that I can participate in. I live in Palos Verdes Estates, California. Um, thank you. I wonder if, Dr. Matro, if you could just address this in a general way in terms of how people can find trials that are near them. Yeah, so um, one of the first places to start is just by asking your local oncologist if, they're, if they offer any clinical trials or if any of the other oncology institutions in the area or region have trials that they're aware of. Um, the next uh, option would be uh, potentially going to that clinicaltrials.gov website. Um, I do believe you can put in locations. Um, and put, putting in details about the the type of cancer that you have, um, and if you're if you know what stage you are, you can put that information in. Um, but best place to start really is by asking your oncologist. Uh, I think if they don't have any clinical trials, um, you know I'm always happy to refer my patients to some, someplace else to get um, you know if that's what I think is in their best interest in their care, then I have no problem with them going someplace else to get involved in a clinical trial. Excellent. And um, a question for Dr. Um, Grana. If I participate in a clinical trial, should I still go to my oncologist routinely? Yes, I actually think it's very important that you set up with that oncologist, that primary oncologist, a plan that will work for both of you. It may not mean that you see them every month or every three months. It may be that you're going to uh, see them before they, you go to the site where the trial is being offered, uh, that you then, that other site will send them information about you and what's happening with the trial. Because if you're fortunate and the trial works beautifully and great, then your oncologist will be very happy. But if things progress and the drug doesn't work or stops working, you can go back to your oncologist and continue your management, and he knows what's happened, what toxicities you've had, et cetera. So I think it's very important to keep your primary oncologist in the loop, and that can be done by the other team sending information as well as by you having periodic visits. Again, I don't think they need to be as often as you might have normally, but they should still continue. Excellent. Thank you. And question for Dr. Liu. Um, I was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer in 2008. If I were, if, if I were diagnosed with metastatic cancer, would I it would still be triple negative? Does this affect how I respond to the change of life? That, thank you for that question. So uh, when uh, or if a breast cancer does recur, um, we are recognizing more and more that the receptor types can shift. It's not common, but it can. Um, so some breast cancers that may start as negative for both hormone receptors and HER2 rarely can convert um, to hormone receptor positive or HER2 positive. So we are increasingly biopsying uh, new sites of, 
of disease, particularly at the time of initial presentation with distant recurrence or metastases, to help confirm uh, the hormone receptor in HER2 subtype, because that oftentimes will define eligibility for clinical trials, but it certainly can impact what our standard of care recommendations would be. Excellent. Um, and we have another question. Um, <clears throat> One of our online participants, um, and this would be um, for Dr. Grana, the FDA is considering approval of a product called Lutethera, which is used to treat somatostatin overexpression. Um, and this particular um, uh, online participant is particularly interested to hear if some other biomarkers, such as somatostatin, Overexpression could be used for the treatment of some of the TNBC, and if yes, how many people? Complicated question. <laughs> so I'm going to start, but then I'm going to pass it on to Dr. Lou, who may know more. So Lutathera, which is a drug that's commercially available, FDA-approved, for use in neuroendocrine tumors. Uh, Mr. Jobs uh, from uh, Apple had this disease. Um, it's commonly used to treat those diseases, and it's very effective for metastatic. Uh, but I am not aware of activity or, or studies being done with it in breast or how much of breast would have somatostatin uh, receptors or markers of somatostatin activity. So I don't know if Dr. Liu or others know more. Dr. Liu? Sure. Thank you. Uh, so uh, somatostatin receptors are not typically studied in breast tumors. There are uh, some breast cancers that may have neuroendocrine features when we look at it under the microscope. Uh, and then those the testing for targets like somatostatin might be done in those rare situations. But it would be very uncommon um, in breast cancer in general and in hormone receptor negative, HER2 negative breast cancers in particular. Thank you. Um, and uh, we have a question um, from one of our online participants. Um, I was I was going on Zalota and Keytruda. I was diagnosed too late to participate in the Keytruda tr clinical trials. I do have residual cancer with one node. Are there plans to track those patients who are using Keytruda post-surgery? Um, Dr. Liu, do you want to address this question? So there are, um, for patients who are getting Keytruda or other immunotherapy, uh, immuno-oncologic agents uh, as a standard of care, there are some registries that individual sites are doing. Uh, if someone was receiving Keytruda as part of a clinical trial, there will be long-term follow-up embedded with that. I hope I'm understanding the question correctly. Excellent. Thank you. And um, this is probably our last question, Dr. Metro. What happens if I am doing well on the treatment being tested in this clinical trial? Can I continue while it gets approved by the FDA? And also the question is, what happens when the trial is over? It's kind of similar questions. Yeah, so typically if a medication is working, we're, um, we aren't going to stop it. Um, so if you are on... A clinical trial and the trial ends, most drug companies will make arrangements to continue to provide the drug for patients who are benefited, benefiting if it's still if it's not yet FDA approved and widely available. 
if it does get FDA approved because of the trial that you are participating on, then then absolutely you would be able to continue on that. But um, it's very, very rare for us to completely uh, stop a medication that uh, is working for, for patients um, unless there are significant concerns about safety. Thank you. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been outstanding. And I want to thank our participants who've really asked such amazing questions today. This has been an amazing program, and we could go on for at least another hour. Um, we have actually um, many more questions in queue, and um, so I do want to um, I do want to actually um, address those of you who are waiting to have questions uh, addressed. So um, first of all, um, for those who either asked a question, have a question yet to ask, or thinking of a question to ask, we want you to take all of those questions back to your treating healthcare team. They know you the best, they know the most about you, and they would be a very good place to take what you've learned today um, back to them and discuss with them any further questions you might have. Um, that's really very important um, in today's program because you've learned things, you have more questions, and if we like to think that these programs give you some additional information, but then you want to take it back to your team so they can tailor the answers to your specific situation because we don't have access to your charts and all of that information, which is all HIPAA protected. So we only have just a slice of your question, and your healthcare team would have such a bigger picture of you and your question and its context. Um, also, um, I would not want anyone to leave this program feeling that you're alone in coping with questions you may have about triple negative breast cancer, any type of breast cancer, any type of cancer at all. I want you to now know that you're part of a community of support. Um, for this program, we focused heavily on the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and on Cancer Care as well. But there are many organizations out there to provide services and information about clinical trials. So at the end of today's program, you will be getting, actually tomorrow, you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation, which will include additional resources for all of you um, to access um, for more information in addition to your healthcare team. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. You've been a remarkable, I have to say, a remarkable uh, group of participants and speakers. And um, we welcome you back to we have a number of other programs coming up, uh, both in December and January. So stay tuned. You'll be getting information about them, more workshops um, for you to continue participate, consider participating in. Thank you all, and I wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.